Queer Rights Sessions, QWS podcast, in partnership with Blarney Books and Art in Port Ferry. I'm your host, Rob, aka RWR McDonald. And I'm Jonathan Butler, and this is a Words and Nerds spin off series. Thanks, Danny. We're coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people, and I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Each month, QWS Podcast will bring you reviews, shout-outs of LGBTQIA plus writers, and feature an interview with a queer writer from our rainbow communities. And now on with the show. Hello, my name is Jonathan Butler. My pronouns are he, him, and today we have Jared Field on the Queer Rights Session Podcast. Welcome to the show, Jared. Thank you. Jared grew up on waterfall country in a small town along the Great Dividing Range on Dorong land. He is, however, a Gamilaroi Māori from Mori Way, where the red sand meets the black soil. He did his undergraduate studies in the University of Sydney in mathematics and French literature, followed by a doctorate in mathematical biology in the Balliol College in, at the University of Oxford. He is still a research mathematician, but feels his spare time writing. His non-academic work has been published in The Guardian and Indigenous X, among others, and his book, Etta and the Shadow Taboo, was published by Hardy Grant in June last year, 2023, and was highly commended in the 2024 Victorian Premier's Literary Awards Prize for Indigenous Writing. The illustrations are by Jeremy Worrell, and his work was shortlisted for the Ina Noel Award this year. So the opening question that we um, challenge all our guests to answer straight off the bat is, how has your work influenced your identity? Oh, God, that's such a difficult question because I really think that it hasn't much. I think my identity has influenced my work. My, the fact that I'm, I'm a black fella, I'm Gomilari, I'm queer, that has really influenced what I've chosen to do, namely not just mathematics. I love mathematics, but these other aspects of my identity, I suppose, call me to to writing and to doing other things. So I, I would say it goes the other way around for me. Yeah, fair. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm excited to get into um, all that later in the show, but we do want to start with uh, your book, Etta and the Shadow Taboo. So for those who aren't familiar with it, I'll just read the blurb. Um, so it starts with, where is theirs and where is mine? To hurt a shadow is surely a crime. When Etta steps on Bawa, her sister's shadow, she learns of the shadow taboo and learns the value, the personal space of others as well as her own. Written by Gamilaroi author J.M. Field and illustrated by Garibald Gamilaroi artist Jeremy Worrell, Etta and the Shadow Taboo will invite readers to follow a Gilmilleroy tradition where one must avoid stepping on the shadows of others. Now, how does an academic working uh, on mathematical biology most of the time come to write and produce a children's picture book? Uh, is the, the word lockdown a good enough reason? You know, I, I, we <laughs> right. had a lot of time when I, when I lived in Melbourne. Um, no, really I had, um, you know, because I'd written lots of essays before then, um, and I'm writing another book that's aimed at adults about kinship and philosophy. But I'd always, always, always wanted to write for children. Um, I think they're some of the best audiences and some of the most honest audiences. Um, yeah, so I think it was just something I always wanted to do. And 
on the one hand, but on the other, um, I think I was very, very lucky growing up in that I come from a Gamilaroi family that still has a lot of our culture, whereas that's not necessarily true for a lot of other families because of being forced onto the missions, um, you know, colonization more generally. So I guess I, I also wanted to write for children in order to share the things that I was gifted, such as, you know, the tradition of not stepping on someone's shadow and what it teaches you. Mm. And broadly, um, I know, can you, do you need to do spoiler alerts um, for children's books? I'm not sure. <laughs> but broadly, it's sort of a way to teach sort of personal space. Is that right? Exactly. Because if you really, like, if you if you wish to avoid stepping on someone's shadow, you have to think about where you are, where the person is, where you are in relation to each other, where you are in relation to your surroundings. Is there a, a tree in the way? Is it, Where is the sun? It, you really, it, it encourages children uh, to think about their bodies in context. And that's really, I think, what it teaches us traditionally. So, um, mm. And it's yeah. a really beautiful book. It's sort of a magical journey as well. You know, um, he goes into the shadow realm, I suppose, and... Um, you know, so it's a, a little bit magic, a little bit, a little bit, uh, not scary, but you know, a little bit, um, frightening at bits and also very familiar and, and, um, I'm sure we all can relate to having an angry older sister um, <laughs> <laughs> about us getting on their nerves as well. Well, I've got three. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, what's, what's the sort of process like, um, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely asking, you know, um, for, I've only written an adult's book, but is, is the process different? I imagine there's a lot of collaboration involved with Illustrator. Yeah. So it's been very, very different to the current project I'm working on. So I had the text done pretty much in term, maybe over a couple of months. Um, but then there was like a, a cultural element of giving it back to my aunties and my uncles and making sure that I'm not sharing too much or that I'm sharing the right thing or that I'm allowed to share certain things. So there was that element of it to make sure it was done right way. Um, but in terms of the, the process with the illustrator, that was a lot. So <laughs> I didn't actually know this, but um, it, it turns out that lots of publishing houses that do children's work, they have uh, illustrators on the books. So illustrators that they prefer to work with um, because they know their style, they know their their turnaround times, they, they can kind of, you know, they're a safe bet. Um, but I was really insistent that I went with an illustrator that was Indigenous and that was the same mob as me or, or mob nearby. So it, it took a long, long, long time to, to push to, to have him in the first place, I suppose. But also just to get the elements right because he – so my, my my pitch to him was, okay, so I want it to look like my country, so the colours of my country, so the colours are very sort of earthy and ochre but I also wanted it to reflect our carving. So our traditional art, it's, you know, it's not the sort of desert dots that you see that are very, very beautiful. We're all about lines and, and carving. So I wanted it to reflect that and he came back – very, very often with such beautiful works in progress. And every time I would be like, this is stunning, but it's not what I want. Which was very, 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 very hard to say, okay, this is beautiful, but it's not the vision. And it was essentially that for at least three years. Mm. Um, which I'm very, very grateful that he stuck around despite that. Um, but 
yeah, the, coll- the the more collaborative side of it was, it was, it was long and it was hard, and it was also meeting the the um, expectations, I suppose, also of the the illustrators because the book is also very different to a lots of lots of other children's books, and very often these publishing publishing houses that do um, children's books, they have a very very good eye for what sells and what doesn't sell. So you go into, you know, like a, the children's section of a bookstore and a lot of the things, there's a, there's a look, it's similar. So having something that stands out and convincing them to let us do that, like they took a real gamble on us. Mm. Um, and I guess convincing them to do that was, was part of the work. Right. And yeah, so glad you did because it really paid off. Like it's such a beautiful book. Like every page is, um, yeah, breathtaking and a piece of art in itself. Um, even the one thing I really like about it, it really pays to reread as well. It's not a book mm. you just read once, put away, and you've got it. I've read it a few times, and each time it's actually, yeah, felt a bit different. So, um, which is, yeah. Um, a great achievement given the, you know, it's not the most, the longest thing you've probably ever written. <laughs> well, yeah, that that's another thing. It's it's actually um, like writing for children. You're, okay, you're writing for children, but you're also writing for the, the parents that are reading it. They have to not want to bang their head against the wall after the first time, you know. So it is, yeah, it's, it's a style of writing that at first I thought it would be really easy. I mean, oh, it's writing for children, whatever. But is it, you know... It takes skill to write in that sort of way, I think. Definitely. Do you have any children in your life? I have 10 nieces and nephews. Wow. Yeah. Did you test it out on them? Or? Of course I did. <laughs> and I got some brutal feedback. Right. You know. Yeah. What What sort of, um, what did they love and maybe not so much about it? Um, the first iteration or so, I think my youngest niece and my youngest nephew, they got a bit bored. Right. And they told me that they were bored, you know, like, and, <laughs> and that was very, very helpful. It meant that I had to change the rhythm. I had to, I had to make something change. I had to scare them a little, you know. Um, yeah, they were very, very handy. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, and, you know, now that you're a published picture book author, I, I'm sure we have a few listeners who would love to do that one day. Do you have any um, advice to, you know, what's the best way to approach it? Oh, God. The best way to approach it, I don't know, but a tip is to add, and I'm, I'm sure this is true with, with, with all writing, as you know, add m- more time than you think it will take. But in, in the case of picture book writing, add even more mm. because you're, you're very often you're collaborating with another artist or an, an illustrator. But even if you're doing the illustrations your, yourself, there's a lot of sort of, background stuff going on around what sort of aesthetics will sell and what won't and so you won't just be doing the illustrations you will also be fighting for the illustrations Mm, interesting and you mentioned you're working on another project now are you happy to talk about that yes yes um oh gosh it's been so much of my life the past couple of years so talking about it is hard because i feel like i'm always i'm living it you know it's there it's ever present um, but it's called, tentative title, The Eagle and the Crow, and it's almost done. One more chapter to go. And it's about um, Gamilarai kinship and philosophy. So introducing people to our um, 
I guess, different ways of seeing the world, the way that we think about time differently, but how that influences uh, our kinship system, but also, the, I suppose, the mechanics of our kinship system itself, which is very, very, very different to Western ways of seeing relations. And does that have a release date or anything like that, or is it still in development? No, no release date. Well, I hope it will be the end of this year, but we'll see. Right. I'm also very, I don't know, I hate rushing anything. Mm. I think if you rush things, they're just a little spoiled. So, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to put a date on it just yet. Fair, fair enough. Um, yeah, so I was going to transition into more of your research work now. Um, and you mentioned the uh, Gamilaroi Kinship, um, which has obviously been a big project that um, you've been working on. I saw your um, great piece on the first innova- inventors um, that you were on uh, TV um, with your mum, which was amazing. <laughs> mm, it was so cute. It yeah. Was cute. I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, good on you for getting on board mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> um so maybe for the listeners, do you want to um, talk about uh, what is this um, kinship process and what what you sort of discovered from a mathematical point of view? Yeah, okay. So um, when I say gumilaric kinship, really what I mean is the system of organising and governance that we had pre-colonisation, and we do still have in some parts, um, but it's not everywhere. And basically, at least in, in my mob, the whole world is split into two and I'm not just talking about people, I'm talking about everything, like different um, different winds, different rains, they have a moiety. Um, but people have moiety too. And at least amongst humans, we say that there are there are dark bloods and light bloods, so Gwe Galiad and Gwe Madan. Um, but then further split into those, there are two more groups. So there are four groups in total and every single person belongs to one of them. And it's the one that is in the same blood as your mother. So you have the same blood as your mother, but you take the opposite subgroup. And of course, it's different to your father because your father is on the other side and you're expected to marry the leftover one in a a first preference marriage. There are second preference marriages, but essentially it determines who you can and can't marry. Um, It used to determine the sort of traditional roles you had so certain um, D groups were maybe considered the craftsmen, certain would be considered the teachers, and so on and so forth. So it really determined our whole sort of society, I suppose. Um, and yeah, it's it's about that, but it also has, I, su- I suppose, and this was my my research as a mathematical biologist. It also has a genetic element. So with this system you can prove with pen and paper mathematics, it's a bit involved, but you can do it, that my entire nation, which is more than two times the size of Belgium, right, went large, we would have to reduce to just 24 individuals so that on average we would be closely related as first cousins, which is huge when you consider the fact that Charles Darwin married his first cousin on purpose, you know, <laughs> like it's a system that's really cleverly designed to, to make a healthy population, but also to make a cohesive population. Cause that's the other element of it. It, 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 it folds people together. So you have a whole set of what is called, I suppose, um, and I struggle with this word classificatory. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> classificatory relations. So, you have not just one mother, but you have 
everyone that's in the same the group as your mother in the same generation, they're all your mothers. Everyone that is in the same D group as your father's mother and her generation is considered a certain type of grandma. So it brings everyone closer together on the one hand, socially, but on the other, in terms of marriages and genetics, it keeps us apart. So it's an extremely clever way of organizing a society. And yeah, my research was about that. And the book, I'm hoping to make those sorts of things more accessible for non-mathematicians. And, yeah, I was going to ask you, for a mathematician, you're a wonderful communicator. Um, Is that (laughs) something, yeah, I'd love to hear about, like, is that something you really want to do? Obviously, you're writing a book uh, for a general audience, so clearly it is. But, you know, is there any sort of overlapping skills with mathematics and communication or do you think it's pretty rare to find? I mean, mathematicians are also academics, so we are expected to communicate our work. I, I guess the, the trouble is is that the, the people that we communicate our work to are almost always other mathematicians, so we speak in a certain sort of way, um, which I don't think is necessarily the best way to talk to a gen, general audience, right? And I think mathematicians often lack that, that skill. So they're good communicators often, but in a, in a way that's really niche. Um, and is it quite important to you to sort of get what you're researching out uh, to a broader sort of population? Um, some of it. I mean, the, the stuff on kinship is it, important to me because getting it out there will help other people who are Gamilarai get interested in it, to relearn it, to think about it, to live by it again. But, you know, I've done other research on for instance, the evolution of grandmothering. I personally find that fascinating and how it relates to longevity and the evolution of longevity. Do I think everyone needs to know that? Not necessarily. So some things I'm more passionate about communicating than others. That grandmother hypothesis was something I did want to ask you about. It's, um, <laughs> it's fascinating. And to be honest, it did remind me of um, – the theory, one theory that floats around around gunkles, like gay uncles. That, oh, what's that? Well, look, I'm, this is not science, but I'm, I think <laughs> there is a theory that, um, you know, when the reason why, what's the evolutionary purpose of gay men? It's they help their siblings um, and don't have their own offspring. So they then commit their resources to helping their nephews and nieces thrive. Um yeah, so yep, so we call that alloparental care right, in right. evolutionary biology. There you yep. go. So I guess there's similar sort of um, theories with the grandmother hypothesis. Do you want to quickly mention what that is? Yeah, so th- it is this theory that we actually, we don't have grandmothers because we live old. We live old because we have grandmothers. And the idea being that, so actually postmenopausal lifespans, for the record, are actually quite rare. They happen in us and some of the toothed whales. So for instance, like other apes, they, they will have a, like a postmenopausal lifespan, but only if we protect them from external predation. It's not the norm in the wild. Whereas for us, it's the norm even without um, Western medicine. Um, and it's the norm also in some of the toothed whales. But this is really puzzling from an evolutionary standpoint because uh, having a large period of your life where you're not actively spreading your genes and, you know, like genes are the the real currency of natural selection. So 
having a period where you're not spreading them seems sort of counterintuitive and puzzling. And the idea is that you can, in fact, continue to spread your genes if you help your children reproduce again sooner. So you're, you're spreading your genes, but you're doing it in, indirectly. And if something can allow you to do that, i.e. life post-menopause, then that should be selected to increase, 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 and so on, until the point that it's actually not beneficial anymore. Mm, so grandmothers, because we live long because we have grandmothers, not the other way around. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And I heard you say before that um, – you're very curious, which is obviously a very important um, aspect to have as an academic, but it's not always the best um, quality to have because you, you like to jump between different things that sort of pique mm-hmm. your interest. Um, yeah, but it's really, really fascinating work. And another thing that I heard that you talk about was um, a turning point that you had in grade 10 around the advanced maths um, class. Um, mm. Do you want to tell us about that? What happened there? Uh, well, like, really, I, I wasn't too fussed with maths in high school. Um, I was always in the, the second highest class, I think it was. Um, and I was given the opportunity with three other people to move up to the top class. And the teacher at the time essentially said that I would struggle and all of the implications around my race being the reason I would struggle. Um which looking back is just outrageous, but I actually listened to her, right? They gave me to um, the end of lunch period to tell them whether or not I would. And I went back um, to chemistry in the afternoon and my chemistry teacher, Ms. Slavacek, um, who I've since told this to and I'm eternally grateful for her, she 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 noticed that I was looking kind of down and she was like, oh, Jared, what's wrong? And I told her what happened and I told her what the other teachers said and then she was like, get out of my class. I was like, what? And she was like, go to the maths department right now and tell them that, yes, you will move up. So I remember running like crazy and, you know, going to the maths department and being like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I, I honestly think I, I wouldn't have gone to uni, I wouldn't have gone to Oxford if I d- didn't have that small little moment where that one teacher, over, you know, in a period was like, you know what, just do it. Someone else just pushing you. Um, but it was actually very, very useful, right? Like in some ways, because I'm, I don't like being told that I can't really do anything. And it was very, very useful f- fuel. And like I, I ended up joining the advanced maths class and I ended up topping it for the next two years and I don't think I would have if I weren't a little bit, um, bitter is not the right word, but something like it, you know? Totally. Did you get your revenge moment when you went and collected that top of the class award? <laughs> oh, you know, is, is that revenge? <laughs> I don't know. It did feel good. It yeah. did feel good. And yeah, well, I'm, I'm so glad that that awful story had a happy ending. Um, mm. Absolutely. I do also want to talk about um, queerness. Um, You have a piece that was published in Indigenous X that was really fascinating and I recommend anyone listening to go check it out. Um, I have a quote here that I want to read to you. Um, 
Its gender in our languages is nowhere near as omnipresent as it is in European ones. Many of my people then do not fit the binary and are being subjected to its violence with the, with an awful frequency that necessarily did not exist pre-colonisation. So, yeah, I, I, it's very, do you want to um, comment on, I guess, gender and language and how that sort of differs? Um? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So, for instance, um, we don't have... As you just mentioned, we don't have gendered pronouns. So he, she, it, it's all the same word. And it's just about context. When is gender important? Sometimes it is, I guess, and sometimes it's not. In fact, most often it's not. Yeah. And the language kind of reflects that. Um, but when speaking English, everything that we do, it, you know, it, it has some sort of gendered element to it. So I guess what I was trying to get to there is that you know, the, the black fella that's, uh, I guess, questioning whether or not the, the pronouns that have been placed on them, really, because that's what they are, whether or not they suit them is a different problem to the settler dealing with that. Because, you know, this problem of, of, of being gendered so often, it's an imported problem for us. Um, yeah. Mm. And similar, you had similar ideas around queerness. Um, the idea of, you know, queerness is um, rejecting or living a different lifestyle from the norm. Um, but even that, again, is uh, two very colonial things. To well, again, yeah, because like, I don't know, like, as you said, it, it's about rejecting certain things. It's about loving differently, but also just living differently. Um and in many ways, that's very, very freeing because I think it means you, you're sort of excluded from the the checklist. I call it the checklist momentum of life, right? Which is that you, you get a partner, you get a mortgage, and you get two kids. You're kind of expected to do these things, but less so now. But I would argue that when we were younger, we were wholesale excluded from these things. You know, we couldn't get married, things like this. So that we had to find other things to do and other ways to live. So it's very, very freeing. But the point I think still remains is that not wanting to live in the same way or not being able to live in the same way, um, it's rejecting, okay, what is the thing that is not the same? It is white colonial culture, right? This idea that you have just one mum and one dad, that is not how my people live, right? Um, so for me to reject it and for you to reject it, they're different different things fundamentally. Mm. And you put forward an alternate term. Has that has that stuck, the gului? Gului. Gului. Um, mm, I've seen a few people use it. Oh, really? But to be honest, the the term itself was less important as the thinking about the term. Mm. Do you want to tell us about the story behind that phrase? Oh, yeah. So we have um, this sort of nursery rhyme in, in Gumilarai culture where the cheeky old crow uh, flies down near someone's camp and tries to steal their food. But by accident, the crow picks up a hot coal instead and gets burnt all black. Um, and gului is the Gumilarai word for coal. And so the word that I 
I tried to use to describe something like queer First Nations people was gului, because on the one hand, we're mistaken for what we're not. You know, um, we are queer, but queerness is an approximation for us um, on the one hand. But on the other, you can use coal to start new fires. And I think, yeah, there's lots of thinking and potential and possibility there Mm. that I really, really liked. I I can see this is your next picture book. (laughs) (laughs) Have you thought about that? (laughs) Oh, no. After after the book that I'm doing, I'm going to have a little break. Fair. Fair enough. Well, I'm going to try. I'm not sure if it'll work. Right, right. Well, when you're ready, I think that would be an amazing book to see out um, on the shelves. Um, We've already reached our closing questions. Um, So the first one that we like to ask all our guests on the show is, what was your hope for Etta and the Shadow Taboo when it came out into the world? Oh, my hope was to see Gamilaray children practicing shadow avoidance in the way that my siblings and I did. And in fact, I have seen that and it's been so wonderful. For um, I was sent a picture during book week, actually, of this little um, Gamilaray child dressed as Etta for book week and it was heartbreaking mm. in the most beautiful ways. Oh, amazing. So good. Um Another question that we ask all our guests is a writing question. Um, do you have any advice or top tips for aspiring writers or storytellers out there? Um, I do have a tip, but it's a stolen tip. That's okay. We can steal. Um, so in – we can steal, can't we? <laughs> um, in Octavia Butler's essay, I think it's called Furore Scribendi, she talks about um, – persistence, just needing to persist. And there's this one line where she says, even she goes so far as to say, forget inspiration, habit is more dependable. And that is that is my mantra for writing. Develop mm. habits, develop habits, because the habits will serve you even when you're uninspired. Mm. Forget inspiration, habit is more dependable. Amazing. And even just when you're saying that, sometimes inspiration is phenomenal and amazing, but it's a very heightened place to be and it's kind of overwhelming. And sometimes you're like, oh, I just need to produce, I just need to produce. But when you're in that state of I'm just going to write at this time of day and I'm going to sit down, I'm going to get it done, mm. it's so productive. So I can kind of see how. Well, it is like, okay, the ins- the inspired writing often creates beautiful work, but it doesn't create sustained work. Mm. You can't write a full-length book just on inspiration alone. Mm. I don't think anyone's ever done it. No. Sound advice. Um, now we have a shout-out question. So firstly, um, if listeners are inspired by your chat and want to stay connected with you, either on socials or book events or anything like that, is there any way they can do that? Oh, God. Or I just buy a book? <laughs> yeah. Look, I used to be on Twitter, but who's on Twitter now? Very good point. You know? Yeah. Um, and I'm not very good with other social media, if I'm honest. Right. So just yeah. Google your name and yeah, um, I, I don't I don't have an answer to that <laughs> one. Sorry. Send me some snail mail. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> Fair enough. And um, book recommendations. Do you have any book recommendations that you'd like to share? Oh, I'm going to go again with Octavia Butler, but her actual work. 
I am obsessed with pretty much everything that she does. And I think it's because she took genres that I loved as a teenager, so sci-fi and fantasy, and she used them in a way that I never thought possible, right? She uses she uses time travel to talk about race. She uses, um, you know, she uses genetics to talk about eugenics and, and gender in I don't know she's just incredible so I would I would say either read Mind of My Mind which is a beautiful first um, book of hers or but it, it's a there are four parts in the series or if you just wanted to dabble um, a standalone book of hers that is absolutely brilliant is called Kindred either of those they will they will change the way you think amazing and uh would you like to give a shout out to any lgbtqia plus artists books shows organizations social media accounts anything like that oh god i, I should shouldn't i since it's mardi gras back in sydney yeah but... how are they doing up there with asbestos in the oh the the asbestos yeah. yeah it's it's <laughs> it's bloody everywhere it's everywhere right um, yeah, it's tough. But, you know, we manage. Yeah. <laughs> the party must go on. <laughs> yeah. Or we're down in Melbourne, so you'll have to fly back and um, join into the festivities. <laughs> <laughs> um, and our closing question is, what is your hope for the LGBTIQA plus communities? Oh, that's a big question. I'm not sure there's one queer community I think we're we're different communities that intersect sometimes but what is my hope I don't know not to get a little bit depressing but free from violence that would be nice like all of that terrible news recently about that couple Mm. that was murdered how is that still happening Mm. it would be nice to be free from violence that that other people don't have is that too depressing? <laughs> well, <laughs> that is the last question. So <laughs> it's, a, it's you know, look, it's a timely um, thing to talk about. Um, absolutely. It's really, really awful and challenging. And, um, you know, really it's good that, you know, we've had a lot of wins in the queer community lately, but, you know, it's good um, to sort of reflect that these sort of things still happen and there's a long way to go. Um, and when things like this happen, it's a really um, sad uh, reminder that we've got to keep keep fighting for a but also a timely months. reminder that pride is protest absolutely like it's it's a celebration yes but it's also protest and it, unfortunately it has to stay that way mm, absolutely well thank you so much jared for being on the show and um, i'm so glad we had this conversation in person I think me, it too, me yeah. too it's thank been you. a pleasure amazing thanks Please check out our show notes on Words and Nerds, Blarney Books and Art and rwrmcdonald.com for links, reviews and the interview transcript. Until next time, this is QWS Podcast.